consider themselves conservative in some form, prescribe and say, and a lot of them even do believe, in the sufficiency of Scripture. But either, but in practice, they deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And for some great examples I, I thought about is the so-called spiritual disciplines that have become so popular really since the 90s, and they continue to be popular today. And some good examples among that are, well, the book Spiritual Disciplines by Richard Foster. You know, and I mentioned Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, and Henry Black would be here, probably three men that, they're three of the men most responsible for bringing this mainstream into, you know, evangelical churches, but even, even a lot of reformed churches. They don't realize that some, exam, some great examples are, in, they, they use different words and different terminology, but would be uh, breath prayers. Uh, some of, exciting something and calming your mind, basically the extremists don't use this kind of language, of emptying your mind, you know, because prayer is a two-way communication. So when you pray to God, if you empty your mind and you wait and you do certain practices, you'll hear from Him. You know, and, and some will even teach audibly, but in, in, in recognizable voices and you know, and uh, whether they want to call them uh, nudging, whispers, things like that. And that should be the common experience for believers. Well, we looked at that. That is nowhere, not one place prescribed or even implied in Scripture anywhere. We looked at the Scriptures they use and how they twist them and take them out of context. For instance, if you remember, one of the big teachings, they all use this, every book, was, well, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Well, there you go, hearing my voice. We hear his voice, I'm going to still a small whisper, whether it's actually we should expect to do that. Keep in mind, you can look through scripture, and you'll see nobody did that. There's nothing taught like that, like do this or that or the other thing, and then wait, you know, to hear from God. In that John 10, 27, we recall that's just the story. It started in chapter 9, about the, blind, the man born blind. Then Jesus gave him his sight. They argued against him. He became a stronger and stronger believer on Jesus. And then finally afterwards, right, ending, up on, ending up on chapter 9, he sees Jesus, he thanks him. Jesus asked him to believe in the Son of Man. Well, tell me who he is, Lord, and I will. The one you respect. He calls us, you know, irresistible grace. We eventually answer that call because we hear him. Right? The Holy Spirit, regeneration. And that's what that's teaching. So anyone who can't understand that clear teaching of Scripture and twist it somehow into expecting direct communication with God, further revelation outside of His Word, beyond His Word, today, is not qualified to teach anything. Obviously not qualified to be a shepherd of your soul. And then they use the other one, the still small whisper, talking about Elijah. And then we talked about that, and how that still small whisper, we talked about when Elijah was in the cave, that he did hear it. So we should hear these whispers. Well, we talked about that. So it's, a, it's a unique Hebrew idiom that's only found in that one place in all of Scripture. And exactly what it means interpreted as can't be positive. But we, we could call it ancient. He, okay, he had something. Then he went outside in front of the cave. And God spoke to him directly, concisely, understandably, and we have written down exactly what he said to him. 
The other example that we ha that they use is where Samuel, as a boy, was sitting in his bed and God was talking to him. Right? Well, we should expect that. Well, first of all, you notice in all three of these examples, and every other example where, you know, God actually spoke, they weren't practicing anything. They weren't seeking it. It happened. God wanted them for a person. He had chosen them. He came to them. It was significant. Significant. And, right, it was God fulfilling, right? It was either in judgment in some cases, but overall, mostly, fulfilling his covenants and promises to his people, right? And for people comparing that into, like, what job to, what job to have or whether I should buy a car or whether I should move to a certain city or whether I should marry this person, to compare those kind of things to God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, Telling him to go that right. It's just right. It's just not true. But we know that Samuel heard him directly. He just didn't understand. Remember, he ran in three different times to talk to Eli, and then Eli on the third time finally realized that it was the Lord wanting to speak to him. So he told him, next time you hear the voice say, Speak, Lord, your servant here. And then we have written down, he understood exactly what he told him. When I say that, you know, these people who teach these practices, they have to say, well, I don't know, distinctly. I haven't, maybe the Lord's. I'm not sure, you know, maybe. Again, for in the scripture. Every time God did speak, he did it distinctly. It was very, it was very, very important on what he had to say. And also, if you remember last thing, Hebrews, we looked at it. Even though it tells us in the Old Testament, God spoke, you know, the Old Testament prophets in many in various ways, but he has now spoken to us through his son. And if you remember, we went back to the Gospel of John, and even Jesus telling them, once he rose and ascended, he would send the Holy Ghost that would teach them all things. And then those things that he taught them, his original apostles, disciples, we have written down here. And that's the word. And we, we, we looked at all of that through Timothy and everything, the word itself, through the Psalms. The word itself, over and over and over again, says God communicates, builds us up, leads us, guides us, directs us through his word. Right? And to seek any of these other things, you can't find them in Scripture. They're not implied. And, you know, we're not to exceed Scripture. <clears throat> I, I say all of, them, all of that, just as a good recap, and... Before we go on to the second part of it on the sufficiency of Scripture, which is uh, the spiritual warfare teachings out there right now, does anyone have any questions? Okay. Well, uh, when I say spiritual warfare, uh, what I know comes to a lot of people's minds is the most common theme now you see in all the books, again, the bookstores, the Christian bookstores sagging with the weight of either one, various spiritual disciplines to grow in your faith, you know, outside of the Bible, <laughs> and spiritual warfare teachings. And their idea of spiritual warfare, for the most part, goes something like this. Okay, it's an ongoing battle. Have you ever heard things like, uh, we have to... Uh, Cast off and break generational curses. 
you know, break hexes, uh, bind and loose Satan and his demons, you know, go capture this city or this territory or this family for, for Christ by directly, verbally confronting and calling out, you know, principalities, powers, forces of darkness, you know. And the first thing I'll say in this, and I'll guarantee this, I do not say, I do not say this with any hesitation at all, that is absolutely, positively foreign to the Word of God. It is not prescribed in any one place. We're going to take a look again at the few scriptures they use to justify it. And just like they did with their hearing, hearing from God, hearing the voice of God, and practicing uh, spiritual disciplines to get into his presence, you know, a bunch of mysticism, by the way. <laughs> you see the spiritual warfare teachings just aren't taught. And it makes us... Kind of, why would we want to speak to demons? Shouldn't our focus be on the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay. Uh, first, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians, we're just going to first, I want to mention what the Word teaches about what spiritual warfare is. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll see how this uh, lines up with. Uh, what these uh, various people are teaching. And again, it'd be one thing if this was just in the word of faith and with the extreme movements. But right, it's like everything. It's, it's filtered out. You know, there, there's all kinds of things that always start from this. When you exceed scripture, when you go outside of scripture, or you twist scripture and you start teaching things and believing things and practicing things that God never promises to bless. God never tells us to do it. The apostle, no one ever told us to do it except these people. And it's something that, you know, it was just hidden from us for 1950 years. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 10. We'll just start reading in verse 1 here. Now I, now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may... Not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. In other words, well, he describes what he means by that. Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down, now what are those strongholds? Imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, what he has revealed to us in his scripture. Amen. And bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. In other words, right, to be obedient and to worship him in spirit and truth and walk in him and know him in how he's revealed himself. Revealed himself in the scripture. And the strongholds, this warfare, weapons of our warfare... We're not carnal. It doesn't come through worldly teachings. It doesn't come through us doing all these things, trying to confront the you know evil powers. Go on because it talks. It talks more about warfare in Scripture. Go to first. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter six. A 
Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, so, so we do know, Scripture, here's one place it does definitely tell us, right? There is spiritual wickedness in high places. There is a spiritual realm. We know that, and they'll manipulate a lot of these stories. Like if you recall with Elijah and Elisha, and Elisha was scared, and, and he prayed, you know, well, open his eyes, and they saw an angelic army encompassing him. That's descriptive. That happened. There's no prescribing. There was no formula so they could see that. And then, anyone here ever heard of Frank Peretti? Frank Peretti wrote a rather popular series of books about 20 years ago. And it was all about, you know, these angels and, you know, these good angels and evil angels fighting over these cities and fighting for truth in these areas and that. And what kind of fighting goes on, just like if you recall too in, in Daniel when he was waiting and Gabriel appeared before him, and he said, you know, I was withstood by the prince of Persia. See, so all of a sudden they gather this, that, okay, there's a spiritual realm. And then somehow, through teachings that they've gotten from former cult members, they say even demons themselves, they've told them how to combat these things and how to fight these, this war. <laughs> You're going to believe the father of lies on, you know... <laughs> On, on, he's going to tell you just exactly how to defeat him, huh? Okay, that's, that's really interesting. But, <laughs> but okay. So we know, we, wiles of the devil, we know an evil spiritual realm exists. And he tells us, right, to fight against it. Now, uh how? -huh. Verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. John 17, 17. Popular, but no one knows that, you know, of heart, but right. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Right? So get to know the truth. Right? Because it's all a battle of the mind. Remember before, it's all lies. Remember elsewhere, right? Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Because we're in bonded people. The world is in bondage, just like we were before we were saved, to lies, you know, to, to truths, and especially concerning who God is, about Jesus Christ, about salvation, within everything else. Okay, and have it on a breastplate of righteousness. He tells us over and over again, right, that walk in obedience. You know, walk in obedience, not that we won't stumble on everything, but be obedient unto the word, right? And that's our breastplate, protects us, right? You know, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Amen, right? And else, elsewhere also, what does it say? So always have a readiness, you know, always being in a readiness to preach that. Right? Above all, taking the shield of faith and trusting God, and trusting our salvation unto God and the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. You know, and have faith that He's in control and that He, just as He promises and just as if we think back and realize that, oh, he's protected us since <laughs> the day we were born. 
<clears throat> but take the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And again, that's just shooting the power of the Spirit. The more we're, we're grown, right, and transformed in the image of Christ. And worship Him in knowledge and truth. And a part of that worship is just how we walk with Him and live for Him every day. But as we grow in truth, right, pray according to that truth. Lord, your will be done. We know we can pray for salvation. Pray against, against unrighteousness. But just praying. Pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Pray for our families. So he says, and then, he, and, and if there was, and here would have been a perfect place to put in. Oh yeah, and remember to bind up Satan and say this mantra and spell and cast them out. <coughs> it doesn't say anything about that. And, you know, and, this, and Paul, think of Paul, gifted Paul. Gifted Paul, who people were, people were being healed you know, by Paul and Peter's presence, handkerchiefs, all of that, all the gifts and all the mighty, mighty power that God worked through Paul. And what does he say in 19 here? And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Oh, so, and pray for me that I may speak the truth of God, the truth of the gospel boldly. Nothing in there at all about, you know, praying hedges or confronting Satan. <clears throat> Elsewhere, if you'd also turn to 2 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And again, just, I want to put this over before we go on and, and get into these. I was thinking real hard, and what I wanted to do is present and lay down, here's what Scripture teaches about spiritual warfare. Because Scripture has a lot to say about it. And it, it is the exact opposite of what these people teaching, what the mainly passes for supposed teaching what spiritual warfare really is and how to perform it. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay? Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. And that's another one I mentioned too. They have a big one about it that, right, you may have genealogies, right? And they misinterpret that because maybe someone in your family in the past has done certain sins. You might be plagued by that. So you, they have formulas and certain prayers that you can do to somehow break the power of that curse. That's another thing about it too, but it's interesting that they, that's a specific thing about them, like bloodline curses and so on. But, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith. So do. Now the end of the commandment, <laughs> what are you telling him? <laughs> is charity, right, or love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, sincere faith. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, or teachers of the word, amen, understanding neither what they say, nor whereof they affirm. Hmm, interesting. So he goes on, and he, and he gives a good explanation. Just go on to verse 18. 
Germany, you charge them, they'll be come in. I want, I want you to charge that they teach no other doctrine. And there's these vain janglings out, vain janglers out there who don't even understand what they're saying or what they affirm. They have no place teaching. Verse 18, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest what? War a good warfare. Spiritual warfare. And then he goes on. He goes on, if you read throughout that, he goes on through the rest, you know, we know one, and he and he gives practical, practical, right? Teachings on everyday life. And then Timothy, right, preach the word. You know, he tells him to keep teaching, you know the word, right? He talks about the word. Why do I get that? Because go right on to 2 Timothy. Yeah, this is kind of Reader's Digest version here, but I just want to get this down because over the course of the, the rest of this teaching, we'll be, going, we'll be uh, going back to these a lot. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, and keep in mind that probably within weeks of writing this, or a few months, Paul was dead and he knew he was about to die. Maybe even days after writing. So this is what he wanted to get across to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. Thou therefore, my son, <clears throat> well, first, drop over to uh, chapter 1, <laughs> verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which is committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us, meant the teachings. Okay, on to chapter 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The teaching, right? The indoctrination, which as long as it's truth is a fine thing, right? That Paul received from him and the other apostles and disciples that Timothy grew up on, right? Teach them to other men. The word. The word of God, the truth, right? Verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that it may please him who have chosen him to be a soldier. And then go on to verse 14. Of these things, put them in some sayings that he just went through. I, I encourage just reading First, Second, Timothy, and looking over these things because there's a lot to be. We can learn a lot of it, but it's obvious, right? It's just by knowing what the Word of God said and following it. That's our warfare. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the what? Subverting. Subverting of the hearers. So we can even be, you know, again, I just say this, the sincerity of these men, there's some, there's some people I know that even do some of this stuff. That's what you hear everywhere. They may be sincere. We know some are false teachers, a sign of that. Some may be very sincere. They, they're saying, they believe what they're saying. They're immature. They have no place teaching it. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is. Right? Truth is the issue. Not sincerity. As I said it before, how many of us, or maybe it's only me, can be absolutely convinced you're right about something, 
until the moment you realize you're wrong. Were you a bad person? Were you an evil person because you believed in error? But you're doing evil if you're teaching it and won't stop after being reproved. <clears throat> Verse 15, chapter 2. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And sure, this is to Timothy, who is bishop, overseer, elder, right? But if it's to him, right, it's to all of us, because any gifts that a teacher has, that we as teachers have, right, as we share them, you grow, just like any gifts anyone has. When you share them, when we're sharing a fellowship, we all contribute to the body, we all grow together. But, right, if that, that's to him, to everyone else, right? It was, it was good for Timothy, it's obviously good for all of us. 16, but why do you need to rightly divide it? Again, the warning, that's the positive, the negative. But shun profane and vain babblings. For they will increase unto more godliness. Error begets error, truth begets truth. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It, some of this stuff is so simple, right? We say it's not rocket science. It's not always easy, but it's simple. And the reason it's not always easy, we have this, you know, the voices we got to calm down in our head and that are the voices that are trying to contradict this word. That's the voices we need to, you know, we, we, we need to get, get those out of our head, but we do that by, by being in this word. But uh, go on go on there to, uh, to 2 Timothy. Oh, wait, I'm in 2 Timothy. Yeah. No man that wore dangle himself. You know, for, I got to admit, when I was uh, finalizing everything the other day, I had another notebook and I wrote down a lot of notes in that one. <laughs> I didn't have on here. But if you can see that, one other thing, you know, we're, we're told a lot about warfare. And I mentioned before, notice our warfare, that main overarching one, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, right? Is casting down imaginations and every vain, right, thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So it's incorrect knowledge. It's knowledge that comes out of imagination. It's worldly wisdom. We need to cast all that down. Because that's the battle. That, that is the battle. Yes, we understand that, that there is a spiritual realm. There's a battle going on there. Exactly how that transpires, we have no idea. And the only thing we can do is guess about it. Which is no good, because we're never going to have an answer. And anyone who says they does is either lying or just as greatly deceived themselves. Because you just can't know. Because you can search in vain. I'll give anyone a paycheck of mine. They can find one place in Scripture that, tell, that explains how. And, furthermore, tells us how to combat them outside of the Word of God and speaking truth. You know, and praying and asking the Lord for protection. You know, and so he taught us to pray, right? right? Lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. That's simple. That's simple. Don't have to go on and on and on. And we don't address Satan. That's just ridiculous. But uh, any questions? Well, good. I'm glad everyone's just absorbing everything so well. Uh, I want to look into the first thing. As I mentioned before, there, there's many things they teach on that. But, you know, I mentioned it, but has anyone heard that before? Like, uh, you know... For instance, a kind of some would consider kind of a simple, maybe a harmless thing, but you ever heard about uh, we need to 
uh, create hedge of protections around people, right, in order to protect them, right? Anyone want to take a guess? Is that biblical? Do we find that anywhere in Scripture? I'll say everyone that the, the fact is, no. Is it mentioned in Scripture, just like they did with the other things? Yes, hedges, of, hedges are mentioned in Scripture in two places, okay? First, go to Isaiah chapter 2. And it, the reason I'm going to bring this one up is not necessarily saying the extremes. I've, I've heard people myself. I've even done it myself. Lord, I ask that you place a hedge of protection around me. Now, but just look at that because if you're doing something not prescribed in Scripture and we're going beyond it, right, what did I say? Error can beget error. So we just got to be wary. Well, why would we want to go beyond Scripture? Why would we want to practice something that we do not find practice anywhere in Scripture? Right? But And then we got to look saying, why, why would they twist what is, does this teaching come from a twisting of scripture? And if it does, we just shouldn't do it. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, <clears throat> Hosea chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that ye should not find her paths. Well, there's a hedge of thorns. So, you know, we can pray a hedge of thorns. I just don't mention this because it's one of two places where a hedge is mentioned in scripture, right? And God puts it up. So this hedge, I just want to take a look. Hedge, and they just mentioned this because it's a place in there, and she put a hedge. If you read through it real quick of chapter 2, read 1 through 13, what he's speaking to is he's speaking to Israel. And Israel's become a harlot, got a whoring from the Lord, and is an idol worship and serving other gods. And he is going to... Verse 3, strip her naked, make her as a wilderness, set her like a dry land, slay her with thirst. Verse 4, I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. Verse 5, for their mother have played the harlot. She that conceived have done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, these are idols, right? that give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers and she shall not overtake them. In other words, you go on through verse 13. What he's talking about is I am going to make her life difficult. She does any of these things. I, I am going to do all of my power to drive her back to me. But in no prescription of anything. And actually, it's a bad thing. He's just saying... Right against that person, I'm going to make it difficult. Any, you know, any, any sin that they do is going to become difficult. Now, that might kind of sound like a good thing. Well, yeah, if I know an unsafe person, you very lower, hedge them up and make it horrible for them. But I would just say watch the language because there's no prescription here for us to ask for this done, right? It's just the Lord letting us know, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And there is all that. But the famous one they use is Job. So if you turn to Job chapter 1. Right, there's just, just small steps, right? You got to start somewhere. But just, just showing they use this, but it always gets into the much more serious stuff after that. But uh, Job chapter 1, starting in 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? 
You know, we, we talked about before, have you ever been here before when we uh, were going through Job or mentioned Job, but how would you like God himself to put that declaration down for you for all time? That'd be nice. And it didn't mean that he was perfectly righteous and never sinned. It just meant right he was obedient, he believed in God and he trusted him. And he desired and did, overall, generally speaking, right, follow his life. Okay, there we go. God hedged them all, therefore we should pray hedge of protection around ourselves. Well, first of all, imagine this. Again, we're thinking of asking God for protection. Well, I'd just say, just ask him for his protection and thank him for it. It's just something they're twisting the word God. You notice again, prescriptive, not descriptive. And it was just an explanation in a way. Was there a literal, like, you know, an unseen realm hedge around Job? I think not. I think it's just descriptive saying, right, there was obviously, obviously God was protecting Job. Just like he promises to protect us. Just like when the Lord taught us to pray, right, you know, we had confession. We, we glory. We started out glorifying him. We asked him to forgive us our sins. Give us our provision. Right? Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from our evil. Deliver us from all evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And we recognize he controls all things. Right? And elsewhere, Jesus himself, when praying, Lord, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. But, nevertheless, and we understand that was in his humanity, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We just trust God. Or, and we remember what Scripture says, right? All things work together for good. I'm just saying, right, they're, they're teaching something, right, that's like as of some kind of prescription or somehow like before we pray for a service that we gotta, we got to pray up this head of protection. I would just say they're wordy. I personally don't like using any of it because they're prescribing something, right? They're describing something, prescribing something, that's only described in Scripture that you find nowhere in the prayers, right? The hundreds of prayers recorded in Scripture. Not once. Can't find things like that. Then you have any questions about that or comments? You know, it just, you know, just on the word again, it's just fine. Ask, Lord, you know, uh, protect me. You know, uh, Lord, ask for your travel mercies. Those things are all fine. But it's not about praying protection. And again, this idea, and it just leads into the whole idea, because it'll go on, you read those books, it goes on, to where eventually, literally, in this sense, thinking about Satan and the evil realm, and us personally attacking it with our words. Because it eventually gets into praying these prayers for breaking of curses and binding up and loosing Satan and everything else which is a direct violation of Scripture, which we are to have nothing to do with the spiritual realm, right? We follow the prayers prescribed for us in Scripture and just trust God. We pray in Him, ask for His protection. We know we're protected. We know, right, according to Hebrews, right, that we have angels that minister unto us. We don't know how they do it. It's not prescribed how they do it. We know prescribed there. We know we have the Holy Spirit. How does He enlighten Scripture and everything? You know, we have protection, and there's spiritual realm out there, but not, not to have anything to do with it. Below that, I just want to talk to generational curses, because this is a this is one of the big ones they come on to, saying, like, we get to say, maybe you're struggling with sin. You're struggling with some type of sin, or maybe you see someone in your family or a friend, someone you care about doing it. They say they're saved, 
It's especially has to do with people that that are saved, at least have a have you know have a profession of faith. But and speaking of people who be saved, they they're they're hooked into this too, that they have to somehow find out and break these generational curses over them and over their family. Okay, and they use well their main scripture. I'm trying to use it as Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. If you turn there real quick, and I think we'll finish up with this, but Exodus 20, verse 5. <clears throat> okay. Exodus 20, verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, right? He's given the, the commandments, right? Don't make a graving image, don't make an idol. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. So that, that, that's literally, that, that is basically their proof text for generational curses. There it is, third and fourth. You notice upon them that hate him. Of course, they never read the next verse. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Okay, two things what he's talking about there, of course, and we talk about this, and there's a lot of good commentary out this about this, but most people are so infatuated with this idea. Third and fourth generations, oh, there is a generational curse, right? And then they blame their own sin upon something their father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whoever did. Instead of taking culpability for their own weakness, their own disobedience, and repenting. Confessing and repenting and going on, right? The devil made me do it. You know, our devil's making me do it because my grandpa Sam did it. Did whatever. But what he's showing there is... Yeah, go ahead. So we have to be careful too in the context because fathers here, people a lot of times will assimilate this to their children. To, like my children, me as a father and then the children next to me. Actually the context here is not talking about a family. It's yeah. actually talking about the leaders of Israel, the yep. fathers of yep. Israel, yep. fell and, and, and brought then the nation of Israel into all of their idolatry, all of those yep. things he's talking about. That's where the generational thing comes yep. from. It comes from the religious leaders taking the, the nation of Israel itself into this idolatry. And what did they do for generation after generation? They worshipped idols. They, the whole nation did. But yet in that nation, there's still a remnant, right? That's what he says here. But to my faithful ones who have kept my commandments... I will be unto them a father. So we have to be careful, too, contextually, not to apply this to the family. It can apply to the family, but here it's applying to the nation of Israel and whether well, they're going to follow and, the commandments. And, and that's true, it, whether it's applying to the nation of Israel. And, and, and the other story is that it is the fathers, because there's other places in the scriptures talking specifically about fathers and children, and I was going to turn to that. But that's true, but in either way, you notice the point he's making, and you can find that out. Okay, so sin begets sin. And you teach these things, and these things carried on, because, right, children, usually the way they rear it up, that's the way they'll live. Then he's going to bring upon them. There'll be curses upon this, right, because of it. But you know what's the main point he wants to say? Though I'll do that, well, what's the very next verse? But I'll show mercies unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. He's much more willing to show mercy Amen. than he is to curse. The curse. But there's another thing about that. So they try to use that and saying, you know, they twist that, they take that out of context. Hmm. Okay, well, it was that, but uh, you know, they don't go beyond. So let's be good brands. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 16. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children. Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, what he's confronting there is they just believed, right, that the children of the fathers, right, that other people, you know, would partake in the same family, right, because if my son sinned, I'll be held that, or the father sinned, the son will take the punishment. No, that's not true. But I want to get in a much more powerful one. Ezekiel chapter 18. This one just turns their teaching about generational curses and everything right on its head. Ezekiel chapter 18. <clears throat> verse number 20. Chapter 18, verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. In other words, right, he turns that right on his head. So the one they're using, saying many generational curses, right, that's bringing a curse upon you, they say, no, no. A person is held responsible for his own iniquity. It ends there. As far as him cursing, right, a, a generations, even if there was such a thing, which we just showed, the focus on ourselves, because it's the focus on Satan. Is, I was planning, uh, if I was planning to, like, hurt my enemy in that, I wouldn't seek for the information on how to best hurt him from him. Isn't that just stupid? It's idiotic. But people, people just eat it up because it sensationalizes our flesh. It tingles us, right? It speaks to us in a way because there must be more than just simply relying on God and walking with him and reading this word and gathering together and praying and singing hymns and songs and just being obedient. There must be more to the Christian life than that. There isn't. And if you're doing those things, you're living a very pleasing life to God and you're growing in Christ and being transformed. All these other things are outside of Scripture. And they'll just lead to moral ungodliness. They lead to confusion. Just like it says, it'll He, His teachings, His desire, His deceit is for three purposes to kill, steal, and destroy. And Following all these things eventually leads to that. Steals your joy, steals your peace, right? Steals your humility. Because you start focusing on this kind of stuff, it feeds pride. It feeds pride, which God hates. But I just say that because, uh, I mean, think, think this thing through, because that's a big thing. If anyone's heard about that, but you read this, but it's all over the place. But this whole idea about breaking generational curses how do you possibly know what they are? Well, what if there's something you missed? And you got to constantly think about it. They brought up a real good example, and I thought of you immediately, Mike. Say so you're adopting somebody. Adopting a child, right? Oh, oh Levi out, out there, right? Well, oh, how are we going to find out? 
what Levi's great great grandfather did. Mm -hmm. We did that. Was there? And then they'll call them out too. We break the spirit of alcoholism. The spirit of drug addiction, you know, the spirit of this, the spirit of that, right? And they find out these names, they make them up, or they're just so deceived, again, understanding neither what they teach, nor whereof they affirm, you know. And it's wonderful because it's, it's very prevalent, but they have those things then leading into body and loosing. This whole idea that they have is a direct confrontational approach against the powers of darkness. And when you think about it, now, when we pray, right, we go and we address the Father. We address the, you know, we address the Son, right? We, we address the Lord. And our mind is then becomes more and more on the Lord as we're praying. We're addressing Satan or a demon or something like that. Where's our mind focused on? Not on him. Or we're worried about... And another thing, we're believing we can speak things into existence like God does. They, that's another big example they do. If you remember, we'll just take a look at that. I'm in with this. And I will just in, encourage, encourage everyone because we'll take a look at this binding and loosing uh, next time we meet. But the three prime examples they use to justify this teaching are Matthew 12, 29... Matthew 16, 19, and Matthew 18, 18. We're binding and loosing are all mentioned. And we're going to take a look at that. We're going to see that. And first of all, it has nothing. It's not about what they're talking about. But here's a big thing in comparison. So they like taking a lot of their things and saying, well, and showing something that was described that our Lord Jesus did while he's here on earth. And then saying now a prescription, now we're to do this. One that's not taught anywhere in scripture. It's not implied, because implied to me, well, just because something happens doesn't mean it's implied we're supposed to do it. Gideon, we talked about that last time, if you remember. Gideon laid down a fleece, right? Put his fleece down, he asked for a sign from the Lord, which actually he could have been struck dead for and God would have been all his right to do so. But he had mercy upon him and granted his sign Remember, Satan tried the same thing. If you be the Son of God, throw yourself off this cliff. Right? He attacks us with Scripture. He's devious, and he has no equal here. But keep in mind that, that they twist all these things, and we're never supposed to address that. And we'll take a look, too, because take a look in Second Peter and also in Jude. And you'll notice that not even, not even Michael or Archangel will rally, will rail, against the demonic realm. But these people are teaching that we should and have the right to do so. Really, really proud and ambitious there. <laughs> but does anyone have any last comments? Well, let me just say this. Yes. Spurgeon said, yes. If one doesn't wander very far from the word, you won't wander very far. And so mm -hmm. if we just simply apply, you know, again, this as a dispensationalist, right? This yes. is why... God has the Bible divided. There's dispensations in the Scripture because certain Scriptures apply. It, 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 it wasn't to us. Sometimes it's for us, but it wasn't to us, and so we can take some principles from that. But the reality of it is the New Testament is full of how we're supposed to pray. Just go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you'll spend the rest of your life trying to pray for the kings and pray for those 
those things that Paul himself yep. prayed for, right? I mean, that, that's just the reality of it. And yeah. Like you said, I don't know why men are always looking for something new and exciting. Yeah, and something t- new and something. It's, yeah. it's just stuns me. But that's yeah, what and, and just remember that we're just told in Scripture, just simply follow those simple directions and commands. Don't add to or take away from Scripture, and do not exceed what is written. If it, if it's not prescribed, the Bible. If we don't see a single example of it in Scripture, <clears throat> for crying out loud, why would we do it? Why not just do what we're what we're told? Because we have enough problems just doing that. Well, you spend a lifetime yeah. just doing those things that are prescribed. Yeah, and, and we're, you, we're doing that all the time, right? We're continuing you to grow. Have time to wonder about this yeah. other I'll say one last thing. Remember Paul, how gifted he was, and you could say if anyone had a real close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd say Paul. Paul ranks up there, right? Men on the road to Damascus. He went in the wilderness. The Lord taught him a lot, you know, period. He also gave him a thorn in the flesh. And consider he was also stoned several times. He was whipped 39 times, five different times, right? He was always struggling. So, you know, it really, do you want everything? Because look at everyone was actually greatly gifted, how greatly they suffered. Do we really want that? But here's the thing about it, that even with that, that was for a time. Even with all these signs, even if there's anything to what these people say, there's this, because remember, what was Paul's ardent desire? Paul is a man who had such a, or such a relationship with the Lord, who knew the Lord. Well, when he was sitting there and asking Timothy to come see him, right when he knew he was about to die, he still said, Timothy, bring the parchments. Especially bring me the parchments. He still wanted to read the word. No, why can't he just speak to God and listen to him? What does he need to read the word for? They're just trying to kill, steal, and destroy, right? These people who want attention for themselves or whatever, they're trying to, they're going beyond what is written, you know, and it just, it's not good. With that, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. What it says, we thank you that you have saved us, Lord, that you have forgiven us our sins, that according to your word, we are at peace with you. We are not under condemnation, Lord. And that we know that you keep us and you promise to continue to keep us until the very end. You'll never forsake us, Lord. We know all these things through your word. We know you hear us, Lord. You answer our prayer according to your good and perfect will, Lord. And Lord, we know when we gather together and we read and study your word, walk in obedience to it, Lord. Pray fellowship, have communion, always always remembering it is by and by grace through Christ, Lord. And always keeping those things in mind, we are safe and secure in you. We thank you, Lord, and ask your blessing upon the upcoming full service, Lord. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.